This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. Bible turn to Acts chapter 13 tonight, if you would. Uh, we're continuing our series entitled Ecclesiology and Church Leadership. We're in week two here, uh, so that means we are officially uh, six weeks away from our very first ever uh, pastoral ordination here at Hui College. So May 22nd, put it on your calendar, plan on being a part of it. It's going to be um, seriously, and again, I know that I like to use a lot of hyperbole. I get it, okay? I get it. I'm a good exaggerator, okay? That's fine. Um, <laughs> my wife tells me. My, my wife gets on to me a lot. Um, I'll, I'll stand up and say something like, you should come to our church picnic. It's going to be the best church picnic you've ever been to in your life. And like, we'll get in the car after church, and she'll be like, so what's going down at the church picnic? I was like, I, I don't know. What are you talking about? She's like, it's going to be the best one I've ever been to in my life. It's just like, oh, well, it'll be awesome. And she was like, why will it be awesome? Well, because I'll be there, you know? It's just like, I don't know. I don't know. What do you say to that? I don't know. But when I say that our very first ever pastoral ordination service will be historic, I'm, I'm not using hyperbole, I'm not exaggerating, that's a really, really, really big deal. And we're going to talk about why uh, over the next few weeks. And so uh, tonight we're taking a look at really um, where do churches come from? Uh, and again, can anybody just start a church if they want to? Uh, what stops somebody from uh, opening up a 501c3 with the uh, IRS and the, um, you know, state of Hawaii and planting their own church? What stops you from doing that? Uh, is that biblical? What should, where do churches come from? If Jesus only planted one church, why do we have a 1, thousand, fifteen hundred different types of churches? It's funny because sometimes when people come to Huikala and this is their first church experience and then they, they leave to go to the mainland, they say, hey, I'm looking for a church just like Huikala. How do I find that? It's just like, hmm. That's kind of a tall order. I don't know how to answer that. You know, here's some things that you look for in a church and things like that. But, but again, every church is unique. Every church is special. Every church has its own personality and its own dynamic and the things that it's known for. And so you can't just say, well, well, they have this word on the sign, and so that means they must be just like us. That's not always the case. And so, uh, again, we're taking a look tonight really at where churches come from. Uh, and so we'll take a look at that tonight. Acts chapter 13, uh, we're going to start in verse number 1. This is really where the uh, idea of missions work and church planting comes from acts chapter 13 verse number one we see that there were in the church those that were at antioch so there's a church in antioch we'll take a look at how the church got to antioch in just a little bit and there are certain prophets and teachers as barnabas and simeon that was called niger and lucius of cyrene and manaean which had been brought up with herod the tetrarch and saul and as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed, they laid hand, their hands on them, and they sent them away. So they, being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, departed from Seleucia, and from thence they sailed unto Cyprus. So here we see the leadership of the church uh, is praying. The, uh, they recognize the call of the Holy Spirit, verse number 2, upon Paul and Barnabas. They gather together to lay hands on them. And it's interesting to note, and this is going to be really important uh, a little bit later, because uh, when we have uh, a pastoral ordination, we're going to lay hands on, on Trey and pray for him. 
And it's not a matter of this, this strange mystical transference of power or uh, anything like that, or that my spirit would go over into his spirit. Uh, the, the sign of the laying on of hands is simply uh, a mark of affirmation. Uh, we're with you, we're behind you, we recognize the work of God in your life, and we are for you. That's, that's all the laying on of hands means. Now, there was a period in the book of Acts where someone laid hands on somebody to receive the Holy Spirit. That happened once and it never happened again. So that's not the reason why we lay on hands. Uh, for those of you who have been at Hui Kala for any length of time, uh, sometimes we have missionaries that we support come in. We'll lay hands on them and pray for them just to say, hey, we're with you and we're behind you and we're for you. Uh, and so when we see that, then, then they get sent out from there and Paul and Barnabas begin to plant churches uh, in different cities. They would go to a place, they would start a church, they would stand it up, they would uh, train people to take over that church, and then they would move to the next place. And that's where we uh, kind of get our philosophy of ministry from, from uh, Acts chapter 13, uh, verses 1 through uh, 4 here. Now, when it comes to the church, we took a look at this last week, so this is just a review for you. The first church was established when Jesus called his apostles, and it was empowered on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. So again, Jesus laid the foundation of the church uh, once the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles, Acts chapter number 1. They went to uh, Jerusalem. Uh, They were already in Jerusalem. They went out and began to preach. It was the day of Pentecost. Uh, And 3,000 people were saved, baptized, and added to the church in one day. That began the church as we know it. Now, as persecution came to the church at Jerusalem, uh, Christians began to flee Jerusalem and find refuge elsewhere. Acts chapter 1, you're already in Acts. Turn back to Acts chapter 1 if you would in your Bibles. Acts chapter 1. So the church all this while has been growing. Thousands and thousands of people are being saved. Thousands and thousands of people are being uh, baptized and growing in their faith, faith and learning what it means to be a committed follower of Christ. Acts chapter one, uh, eight verse. I'm sorry. Acts chapter eight, verse number one. And Saul was consenting unto his death. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And then, so again, we see persecution comes. Uh, Saul, uh, Paul, uh, was Saul before he got saved, uh, brought a great persecution against the church, and then they were scattered throughout all the regions. So imagine this, there's one huge church in Jerusalem. Like if you went to church on Sunday, you went to the church at Jerusalem. If you were a part of sharing the gospel, you were a part of the church at Jerusalem. If you considered yourself a Christian, there was nowhere else for you to be other than the church at Jerusalem. There was one church. And then when persecution came, man, they scattered like flies. And again, if you take a look at the end of uh, verse number one, they scattered everywhere except for who? Except for the apostles. And so basically, the, the church at Jerusalem went from having, it's estimated, ten to 15,000 people in that church down to 12 really quickly. And where did these people go? Anywhere they could. Uh, they were basically fleeing for their life because persecution had happened there. Stephen had been put to death, uh, and he was uh, one of the, the first leaders in the early church, got put to death because of his faith, and they said, hey, we got to get out of here. Things are getting way too hot. And then the church scattered. And so it's interesting to note that when the persecution happened and the scattering of the church, this now created a church with a greater reach. Now no longer did you have to go to Jerusalem to hear the gospel. Now no longer did you have to go to Jerusalem to take the Lord's Supper. No longer did you have to go to Jerusalem to hear somebody who would teach and preach the Word of God. If you wanted to know about Jesus, there was a church now somewhere near you that had come from the people at Jerusalem. 
And so it's interesting that we look at the persecution that took place at the church now, and they go, wow, what a terrible thing that was happening. And people were being beaten, thrown in jail. Stephen was put to death. Uh, Things were getting really, really bad during this time. People were losing their jobs because they were Christians. They were kicked out of their family and were disowned by their family members because they decided to follow Jesus. This was an intense time of pressure upon the church. And they basically said, hey, guys, we got to split. And so you look at that and go, wow, what a terrible thing. No, no, no. This was always part of God's design for the church. Now, mind you, if, if it had stayed the way that it was in Jerusalem, you and I would have never heard the gospel. I, mean, I don't know how many people in this room have gone to the Jerusalem before, but it's probably not very many. And that would have been your only hope for hearing the gospel had the church not scattered the way that it did. And so again, we see that this persecution that came was actually a really good thing. Uh, again, in verse number four, we see they that were scattered abroad went preaching the word everywhere. Philip went down to Samaria and preached Christ unto them. And so we see again what happened when uh, he began to, to preach Jesus Christ in Samaria and the other places. Acts chapter 8, verse number 26. Take a look at verse 26. And the angel of the Lord said unto Philip, Arise and go towards the south unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is the desert. And he went down there, and there was an Ethiopian man sitting in a chariot reading Isaiah. And Philip goes up to him, and he's like, Hey, man, do you understand what you're reading? He's like, How could I understand except somebody explained it to me? I love what the Bible says. And Philip preached unto him Jesus. Wow. The only way that Stephen was, I'm sorry, Philip was able to do that is because the church at Jerusalem had already scattered. So now we see the church now having a farther reach than just Jerusalem. This was a good thing. Again, the persecution of the church and the scattering of the church now created a church with a decentralized structure. Now we get into, again, a greater reach, but now we no longer have one leader of the church. Most Bible scholars uh, believe, and I would agree with this, that James was more than likely, uh, the author of James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ, would have been the, uh, the pastor at uh, the church at Jerusalem. Now, they probably had many pastors, but if there was one guy that was in charge of, of most, we would uh, uh, expect that to be James. And so James would have been the pastor of the church, the only one around. But now, not everybody's looking to James anymore. Now people are looking to their local leaders within their churches that are now in their villages. Some people might have met in a a cave or on a hillside or something like that out in the middle of nowhere away from persecution. And they had to find out, hey, who's going to lead us through this? Who's going to teach us the Bible? Who's going to teach us what it means to be a committed follower of Jesus Christ? Hey, who's going to take on things like baptism? Hey, if we're going to remember Jesus' broken body and his blood that was shed through the Lord's Supper, who's going to oversee this now? And basically, during this transitional time in the church, basically whoever could take take on the job took it on. Now, there would be later times where Paul writes to all these different churches And says to them, hey, here's what your pastor should look like. Hey, Timothy, uh, I want you to take a look at pastors, and here's the qualifications of pastors. Hey, Titus, I left you in the city of Crete because I want you to go to every city, and I want you to ordain pastors in every single city, and here's the qualifications for these men. 
That would be a little bit later, but now we've created a decentralized structure, which is good. This is the way that Jesus designed his church. You know why? Because who is the only head of the church? Somebody help me. Jesus Christ is. So there was never supposed to be one person who was over all of Jesus' church worldwide. That was never God's intention. So this scattering was a good thing because it created now a decentralized structure of the model of the church. When it comes to things like changing the world, God's institution for changing the world is the local church. The gospel is a life-changing world-changing message, how does it get out there? It gets out there through the local church. Honestly, today, I don't know how many people gathered together over at Alamona Beach Park and baptized other Christians. I didn't see anybody out there. It doesn't mean that there's not. I see, I've seen people before out there baptizing. always want to ask what church that they're from, what they got going on and stuff like that. But again, who should be out there baptizing today? Jesus' church should. Not just on Easter Sunday, but any other Sunday as well. When we were on outreach these last few weeks, as I was out in our community and passing out invitations and things like that, I didn't see a lot of other Christian literature that was hanging on people's doors. If you ever had the opportunity to go out on outreach and hang out invitations on front, people's front doors, you'll generally sometimes come across other religious literature, typically Watchtower Magazine, Jehovah's Witnesses, you come across sometimes Mormon paraphernalia that's left. I always do those people a favor. I take that stuff from them and I replace it with the truth. Now, let me take that for you. I know exactly what to do with that. And you say, that's dirty. No, I'm trying to save somebody's soul. You can say what you want to say about it. But when it comes to doing the work of the church, of changing the world, who does that? The church does. The church was never existed to put on a big, huge light show and to make you feel good and to cause you to come to church and cry and stuff like that. Uh, if that happens, praise God, as long as the mission of the church is still going forward, which is changing the world through the power of the gospel. The church was never meant as a place for you to be entertained. The church was never meant to be a place where we're going to raise your kids for you so that you don't have to. The church was always created as a place to change the world through the power of the gospel. And this church, who we call a Baptist church, was planted because we have a burning desire in the depths of our soul to change this island and therefore change the world. That's why we're here. Hey, look, I didn't leave California to come here to gather together a few people that would sing some songs on Sunday and be nice to each other. I'm not interested in that. We came here because we want to see people saved, baptized, grow in their faith, and go out and change the world. That's what we're about. And I'll just say this as a side note, too. As our church continues to grow numerically, let me just tell you this. I don't care about a hill of beans about our church getting larger in size. I want us to grow deeper spiritually in love with Jesus. I would much rather have 25 people that are 110% sold out for Jesus than 1,000 people who just want to come and see what the show is this weekend, any day of the week. And I'll just go so far as to say this. I talked this over with the deacons last Sunday night. I said, in the next four years, I want who we call to plant another church out of our church. And probably what that means is cutting what we've got in half and sending people elsewhere. That's what, that's what I feel like God impressing upon my heart for our church. I don't know about you, but that's terrifying. <laughs> and you might be sitting here and go, please don't send me away with the split. 
she's saying. But here's the thing. Again, we take a look at, at, at this morning. You know, we had two services that were, even the 8 o'clock service was full. But the, the 10 o'clock service was just jammed wall to wall. We had tons of kids and stuff like that. Uh, hey, look, what's, what is God's plan for our church? That we would do that, what, two times? If we did it twice on a Sunday morning, we might be able to squeeze 700 people in here. What, we're going to do it three times, four times, five times, so we can grow to 2,000 people? Then we begin to lose what we're known for, being a church that feels like family, where everybody knows each other and everybody loves each other and everybody's looking out for one another. And then you just become a person in the one of the 12 services that we have on the weekend. And that's not what Jesus' church is about. And so again, I don't have a desire to pastor a large church. And so when we begin to get larger numerically, if God continues to bless the way that he does, we're going to chop it and start it all over again somewhere else. Why? <laughs> because again, we praise God for a record attendance this morning. But look, if we, had 400, if we just had 400 people in church this morning, that is one one-thousandth of the size of our entire city, just in the city limits. I'm not talking outside the city limits. Folks, we haven't even scratched the surface. And again, we should clap and praise God for all that he's done, but please understand, we haven't even begun to start the mission, much less complete it. And it grinds my gears. People want to pat themselves on the back and self-congratulate for, uh, you know, all the things that they've done. Hey, look, people are dying and going to hell while we what? Pat each other on the back? Heavens no, not on my watch. This church was established to change the world. You know why? Because Jesus' church was started to change the world. And so well, that's not the way at every church in America. Absolutely right. And that's why we have to go back to what Jesus created us for. When it comes down to the stewardship of the gospel, this is the responsibility of the church. Again, it's nobody else's job to see people saved, baptized, discipled, and growing in their faith. Nobody's job other than the local church. There's a typo on that slide. I thought I fixed it, but I didn't. I'm sorry. The stewardship of the gospel is the responsibility of the church. Again, nobody's going to do the work except for us. And if the church neglects the gospel, which so many churches have, the world has zero hope. Again, I, I scrolled through our social media feed today to post some stuff on Facebook of, of our baptisms and stuff like that. I'm trying to do better. Um, and so, but as I'm scrolling through, I'm seeing things that, that you know, pop up and recommended for you in your feed and stuff like that. It's just all this atrocious nonsense that takes place in the name of Jesus. Like churches unveiling new stained glass and churches unveiling new paintings of Jesus where it looks like a really sad white guy on a cross with a little bit of blood on the side. It's just like, and people standing and giving standing ovations. And I'm thinking to myself, first of all, why is this recommended to me? Is somebody trying to make me angry? Because this is making me angry. Second of all, can you stand up and clap for a painting? Come on. Jesus died to save sinners, not to be enshrined in a, a photo. And look, there's still the Ten Commandments that we shouldn't make a graven image in the image of God. I think that might qualify. I don't know where I was going with that, but it was good. Um, oh, stewardship of the gospel. <laughs> Again, of the hundreds of churches on our island, how many people stood up today and used the words sin, repentance, Jesus saves sinners? 
I, 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 I don't even want to know how many stood up and says, just like spring and Easter brings fresh colors and beautiful flowers, so Jesus brings you a new opportunity for this new season of your life. What? No, no, no. Jesus died for sinners, not to give you flowers for the new season for your life. Again, we got to go back to the gospel. What's the important part? Jesus died for sinners. And if we lose that, folks, we've lost everything. And may God shut this church down and burn it to the ground the day that we refuse to preach the gospel. Done. We're of no use. We just become another apostate, nonprofit organization that does Christian-ish stuff. And I'm not interested in that. The Great Commission is about the advancement of the gospel and the maturity of disciples. This requires the oversight of a local New Testament church. Every pastor of every church will one day stand before God for the way that they stewarded Jesus' church and the way that they stewarded the gospel. So with every fiber of my being, with every breath left in my lungs, I will preach the gospel of Jesus Christ as long as I'm alive because I stand before God for that. And that's a big deal. Again, when you go to attend churches for six months to a year and you don't even know that you're lost and need Jesus, there's a problem in the pulpit. When, when I attend church it's somewhere on vacation... And I walk away from hearing a message thinking I just need to pray more or try harder. Someone has failed to clarify the gospel. And so again, it's the the job of the local church to make sure that we stay on top of that. And again, that's why God's given us pastors. That's why God's given us deacons to make sure that we keep the mission of the church in focus, pushing forward to what Jesus Christ has for us. Now, Where do the new churches come from? We took a look at that in Acts chapter 13. This is the model for church planting. This is the model for missions. First of all, the local church identifies and commissions leaders. Again, if you take a look at Acts chapter 13, verse number 1, it lists all the prophets and teachers that were there uh, in the uh, church at Antioch. Where did the church at Antioch come from? This was one of the churches that scattered from the church at Jerusalem. They went into Judea, they went into Samaria, and they also found place of refuge in Antioch. And then they gathered together, and the church leaders in Antioch began to pray and seek God's guidance. And they recognized a special gifting upon Paul and Barnabas. You say, how do you know they recognized the gifting? Because they laid hands on them and said, God's doing something special through these two men, and God wants to use them to a greater degree. And so we see the local church identifies and commissions leaders. Next, areas of of need are identified. Hey, where should we start a church? Hey, where should we look at sending missionaries? Hey, where are places that are in need of the gospel? For the 12 months before we planted Huikala, uh, basically from all of 2012 into halfway through 2013, we traveled around the United States to uh, uh, missions conferences and churches and uh, church planting conferences and basically said, hey, we're the kings. We're going to go to Honolulu, Hawaii, plant a church in the middle of the city, a city of 400,000 people that's starving for the gospel. Uh, We're asking you to partner with us in prayer. Also, if you can help us financially to get there and plant a church in one of the most expensive cities in the entire world. I still remember that pitch like the back of my hand because I gave it 500 times. I don't say a pitch like I'm trying to sell something. It's just, they say, hey, tell us about what you feel like God wants you to do. Man, that's what I would say. 
because I really believed it to be so. And then you have guys, hey, tell us what you're going to do. We're going to Dallas, Texas, and we're going to plant a Baptist church. And it's just like, oh, heavens, another Baptist church in Dallas? Are you serious? All the churches there, the worship leaders got long hair, and the ladies wear breeches, and we're going to plant an old-fashioned Baptist church. Really? Like in Dallas, Texas? We're the Smiths. We're going to Atlanta to plant a Baptist. Baptist churches in Atlanta? I about lost it when somebody said, we're planting a Baptist church in Nashville. Are you serious? Like Nashville is the home of the Southern Baptist Convention. If any church has Baptist churches, it's Nashville. They have big churches. And you're going to start another one. Why? Because you know, somebody doesn't sung a song that you didn't like one time? Come on. Like there are literally places in the world that are starving for the gospel, our city specifically. And look, just to give you some context, if we wanted to try to reach every single person just within our city limits, for what God did in our church today, we would need 1,000 more who we call a Baptist churches. Does that give you some context? You talk about a city that needs the gospel, a city that needs Jesus. We need it. So it's the job of the leaders of the church to look at areas of need and where we can get behind people and, and give resources to help get the gospel in those places. And then we plant churches there. I've already been taking a look. I've, I've studied a map of this island for the last 10 years. And I can tell you every single area where churches are needed on our island, 100%. You say, oh, there's churches everywhere. There are. I'm talking about gospel preaching churches, though. So we identify areas of need, we plant churches, and then we use, from our church, we send out other churches. So here's the the New Testament model for church planting. Churches start other churches. Who we call a Baptist church is started by the Lancaster Baptist Church of Lancaster, California. My pastor to this day is Pastor Paul Chappell. Talked to him once a week, texted him with him this afternoon, asked him how his Easter services were and told him about everything God's doing at Who We Call It. Again, because churches plant churches. You find some guy who just finished seminary and decided that he just wants to go plant a church because he got a wild hair. Uh, That's not a biblical model for church planting. You find a church that gets started because somebody got mad at their last pastor and they wanted to take half the church with them. That's not a biblical model for church planting. Now, have there been churches that have split from other churches and done well? Yes, but they're few and far between, and they're almost always because they split from doctrinal or moral reasons. Pastor had an affair, didn't want to step down from the pulpit. People said, we're leaving, and we're going to start a Bible-preaching church the other side of town. Man, God bless you. Go for it. Don't let anybody defile the name of Jesus' church. The pastor's preaching heresy from the pulpit questioning the inerrancy of Scripture, by all means, split and go start another church across town if there's not already one. But like, oh, they painted the auditorium gray, and I really wanted it to be tan, and so I think we're going to leave and start our own church, and everything's going to be tan. Okay? And we laugh at that. (laughs) Churches have split over smaller things than the color of the paint in the auditorium. And let me just tell you this, there is never one time and never will be as long as I'm the pastor of this church ever a vote on the color of paint on anything. Just know that, okay? If you got an opinion, God bless you. Thank you for sharing that. We're going to continue going. You know why? Because I've been a church at a church before 
where they, they painted swatches on the wall and had people come up and cast an anonymous vote for the color of swatch that you liked on the wall. And then when certain people's colors didn't get chosen, they got mad. And they're just like, I've talked, everybody I've talked about went with Swatch 2, and I don't know why we use Swatch 1. I haven't found a single person that voted about Swatch 1, and I think we need a recount. What? Look, Jesus' church isn't around to help you choose interior decorating colors, okay? We're pushing the gospel forward. If you don't like the color of the paint, put on sunglasses or something. I don't know. But the fact of the matter is, is that churches start other churches. That's a biblical New Testament model. And when it comes time for us to start another church out of who we call a Baptist church, we're going to identify the leaders in our church that can plant a new church. We're going to pray. We're going to identify an area of need. We're going to gather the resources together to make that happen. Uh, starting in the next 30 days, we're going to start a church planting fund where we begin socking away money for our, our church plant. Because how many of you know when it comes four years from now, it's like, hey, I think we should start a church. Yeah, me too. Who's going to run it? I don't know. Do we have the money for it? I don't know. It's a terrible idea. We need to start planning now, identifying leaders now, begin training leaders now, begin saving money now, so that when the opportunity arises and we're ready to pull the trigger, we just go. That's the New Testament model for church planting. And so, again, we need more churches. Yes, churches plant churches. That's the idea behind it. Now, local churches should be autonomous. What that means is they're self-governing. Who we call a Baptist church is not a matter of any convention, organization, association, or anything else like that. We are autonomous. Look, we decide uh, we want to paint the auditorium, we paint the auditorium. We decide that we want to... uh, borrow the parking lot from our neighbors, we borrow the parking lot from our neighbors. We decide we want to sign a lease with our landlord, we sign a lease with our landlord. Simple as that. We're autonomous, we're self-governing. We don't need anybody's permission for anything. If we need a new pastor, the church helps select a new pastor. What's the process of that? It's outlined in our church constitution and bylaws. That our deacons put together a pastoral search committee, they find appropriate candidates, and they, uh, we put it to a vote in the church. It's all in the church constitution and bylaws how that's done. We don't have somebody on the mainland that's going to send us out three candidates that they've hand-chosen for our church. It doesn't work like that. The local church is always supposed to be autonomous. Again, once they scattered from the church at Jerusalem, they became autonomous, self-governing bodies. So again, when you have churches that are part of a denominational structure that like, oh, we want to do this, but we got to check with headquarters on the mainland, that's not a biblical model for churches. Just not. Churches are to be autonomous. They're supposed to be self-governing. Also, <coughs> local churches should be governed by the local church. Nobody need, knows the needs of this church like the people of this church. Can you imagine, oh, we've got a headquarters in Maine, and they're going to send three candidates from Vermont, New Hampshire, and you know Boston to candidate as the pastor of who we call a Baptist church. They've never been to Hawaii before, but they've seen Hawaii Five O a couple of times. Hmm, this ought to be exciting, right? Look, that doesn't even make sense. Who knows the needs of this church like the, the people of this church? Churches are supposed to be self-governing. Who's going to authorize our, our budget? Somebody who's counting beans somewhere in some office on the... 19th floor at some office building in, you know, Wichita, Kansas? No. 
Churches should be self-governing. They should be autonomous. At the end of the day, uh, this church answers to Jesus Christ as its head, and we do what's appropriate to advance the gospel as a church. Now, if Jesus only started one church, why do we got so many of them? And again, if Jesus only started one church, why did, did, did who he called out have to be planted in a city because of the, the, lack of, uh, the lack of preaching of the gospel? Why, when you say the term Baptist, does it just not mean Baptist? Why does it mean like, uh, or are you this kind of Baptist or that kind of Baptist? <laughs> There's a guy who uh, had came by our church uh, several years ago. And he said, um, oh, who we call a Baptist church? What kind of Baptist church is that? I said, we're just Baptist, man, just Bible-believing Baptists. And he says, oh, Bible Baptist church? No, we're not a Bible Baptist church. That, that's actually a thing if you didn't know. Uh, no, we're not a Bible Baptist church. We're just a local, autonomous, Bible-believing church. He's like, are you a Southern Baptist? Nope, not Southern Baptist. Northern Baptist? No, not Northern Baptist. Just plain old Baptist. Oh, so like General Baptist? Yeah, gen- no. General Baptist is actually a thing. We're not General Baptist either. He's like, oh, okay. And so I said, um, I said, we're just like regular Baptist. Oh, so you're regular Baptist. <laughs> no, regular Baptist is actually a term too. We are just, we're not connected to anybody at all. We're just Baptist. And it's like, you look, there's like probably 150 different flavors of Baptist. And so how did that happen? Uh, you know, why do we have like Presbyterian Church and Presbyterian Church of the United States of America and then you have the United Methodists and then they get the Free Will Baptists and the, the Free Will Methodists and like all these other things. How did that happen if Jesus only started one church? Well, to really understand that, we've got to go back and take a look at uh, church history. And again, I preached this before at length. I'm not going to do a, a long study of it tonight, but you need to know your church history. So we're going to kind of cruise through it really quick. If you've got questions, I'll be happy to ask them, answer them for you later. First of all, it's important to understand that in every age since Jesus and the apostles, there have been companies of believers, churches who have substantially held to the principles of the New Testament, always. Let me say this, and again, if that's too big of a, of a slide for you, I want you to get this. Since Jesus started his church, there has always been a true church that Jesus started, always. They might have been small in number, they might have been met in caves, they might have met in valleys and hillsides, but there have always been people of the book who were just part of the church that Jesus started. Now again, depending on the type of history books that you read, you might hear that, oh, the church morphed into Catholicism, and then Catholicism became the big thing until the Protestant Reformation. That's an inaccurate view of church history, because if that happened... If the church that Jesus started morphed into the Catholic church, then that means when Jesus said that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church, Jesus didn't keep his promise. So again, there has always, since the beginning of Jesus, been a church that harkens back to the New Testament church and New Testament doctrine always. Uh, throughout time, they've gone through by many different names, uh, Christians, Donatists, Monetists, Novatians, Puritans, Paulicians, Albigenses, Waldensians, Anabaptists, Baptists, and more. Basically, they just come down to Jesus' church. Now, Coming in about the first hundred A.D., there became three major doctrinal divisions within the church that basically caused a church split. And it's important to understand this. At the end of the day, doctrine is the glue that holds the church together. And when we deviate on doctrine, we have to split apart. Look, this church over here might be a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church, but when they start baptizing babies, we have to say, ah, we're going to have to separate from that because that's not biblical. 
When people say, oh, there's multiple ways to heaven. We've got to separate from that because that's not biblical. And so we started with the church that Jesus started about 100 AD. They have three major doctrinal deviations. First of all, a church hierarchy. Where somebody basically said, hey, look, your church is small. Our church is bigger. Why don't you let our pastor run the show for you? He'll take care of all of your needs. Maybe you can preach on the weekends, but then we'll kind of be in charge over here. And then they created a hierarchy. And this is problematic because, again, when we look back at the New Testament, local churches were autonomous. They each had their own pastor. They each had their own deacons. Uh, They each had lay men and lay women in the church that were the leaders of their church. And now you have someone who is over them, and they created a hierarchy of churches which became problematic. The second major doctrinal error that came into the church early on was baptismal regeneration. This is the idea that baptism saves you. You can confess your sin to Jesus, but until you have been plunged under the waters of baptism, your sin is still there and needs to be washed away. And one cannot be saved apart from baptism. As you can imagine, Bible-believing Christians says, hey, time out. We don't believe that. We don't agree with that. And there became a split amongst Bible-believing Christians at that time. Also, a third doctrinal error, again, when you get into things like baptism saves, well, I want my kids to be saved. And so they started baptizing babies, infant baptism. So three major doctrinal deviations that took place early in the church between 100 and 200 A.D. that caused the very first ever split on the timeline of the church. And so now you have, again, the church that Jesus started up here, and now we have a parallel timeline on the bottom of these people who have bought into doctrinal error. Then by the year AD 313, Christianity appeared to have won a victory over paganism because a new emperor came to the throne in Rome known as Constantine. Constantine was the emperor and said that he saw a sign in the, the sky that said, by this thou shalt conquer. He interpreted that to mean that he should become a Christian and that Rome should become a Christian nation. And so that uh, caused him to create the, the Rome, uh, I'm sorry, the Empire of Rome, to have its very own state religion known as the Roman Church or the Holy Roman Catholic Church. And if you were a, a, a part of the Roman Empire, you were required by law to be a part of the Church of Rome. And this began what you and I know of as the Roman Catholic Church. 313 A.D., uh, Constantine basically made it law. Then somewhere along the 800s or so, there was a split uh, with the Greek Orthodox Church uh, where they split off of Catholicism. The Greek Orthodox Church uh, would put their headquarters in Constantinople. And then the, uh, the, the uh, Catholic Church would put their headquarters at the Vatican. Um, at about 416 uh, infant baptism, 416 A.D., infant baptism was mandated by law for all children under Rome's rule. Those who refused infant baptism from 416 on were either imprisoned or put to death. This began the area of what we refer to as the Dark Ages, which would last for the next 1,200 years. Where if you claimed to be a Bible-believing Christian, you were given the option to either join the church or be put to death or imprisoned. During this period known as the Dark Ages, about 1200 uh, A.D., began what was referred to as the Inquisition, which was a church 
court that church court when i say church court i'm talking about the catholic church was created to try what they called heretics which was anyone who disagreed with the catholic church inquisitors would go out into troublesome regions question people intensively conduct tribunals and mete out punishment sometimes harsh ones like burning at the stake depending on the time and place targets were heretics Jews, Muslims, Protestants, rationalists, and sometimes people who held superstitious beliefs. During the Dark Ages, this 1,200-year period, it's estimated that 50 million Christians would be murdered by the Roman Catholic Church. Men, women, boys, girls, babies. Murdered. Why? Because they refused to join a church that taught heresy. We're going to stay with the Bible. Owning a copy of the Bible in that time was, a, was an offense that was punishable by death. Refusing to baptize your infants was a crime punishable by death. Refusal to join the Roman Catholic Church was punishable by death. And that's why it's really important that when we read about the church in history books, we need to determine which church you're speaking of. Oh, did you know that Christians used to put people to death that didn't believe in, in, in what they believed in? Not Christians. The Catholics did that. And you know what they did? They put Christians to death too. Oh, Christians have done terrible things in the name of God throughout all the years. The Catholic Church has done atrocious things. And let me just tell you, the Catholic Church isn't done doing atrocious things in the name of God. But let's please understand, separate the sheep from the goats when you talk about what the church has done. And so again, sometimes when you read, especially secular history or history textbooks in high school and stuff like that, and they'll say, oh, the church did this, or Christians did this, or, and things like that, they're not always talking about the same Christian church that you and I are talking about. And again, when they're talking about doing things on a broad scale, especially during those dark ages uh, and the Crusades and things like that, that wasn't Bible-believing Christians. That was Catholicism forcing people to convert to Catholicism. And again, to this day, the Catholic Church has not repented or repudiated the Crusades and putting people to death for failure to join the church. So Charles Spurgeon said this, and, and again, if you go to try to find uh, church history uh, during this period of the Dark Ages. It's very, very difficult to find, and sometimes some of the textbooks that are there conflict. Sometimes history conflicts, and Charles Spurgeon had an outstanding quote that he said, he said, history has hitherto been written by our enemies who would have never kept a single fact about us upon record if they could have helped it. At times, it's ill-written. History would have us to think that they died out so well as the wolf had done his work on the sheep. Again, here's the thing. If you're murdering people by the villages, you probably aren't keeping a log of all the heinous things that you're doing. You're just extinguishing these people and hope that their story never gets told. And for Bible-believing Christians throughout the ages, for 1,200 years, 50 million Christians were put to death. A lot isn't known about people in that time period by design. Nobody wanted to keep receipts on the people that they were putting to death, the people that were being drowned, the people that were being burned at the stake for owning a copy of the Bible. During this period of time, it was against the law to have a copy of the Bible. If you wanted to see a copy of the Bible, the only place it could be found was chained to the pulpit of the Catholic Church. You weren't even allowed to take it from the pulpit to read it for yourself. The idea was that the priests would tell you what you needed to believe, and that should be enough for you. 
But there became several men who says, we're not going to take this any longer. One man by the name of John Wycliffe, he defied the teachings of Rome. He began to do a really crude translation of the Bible from some Greek and Hebrew texts. He'd even taken some of the Latin Vulgate, which wouldn't be a great translation to translate the Bible from because it wasn't one of the original language. It'd be kind of like making a copy of a copy. He began to do a really crude translation into English because he wanted people just to be able to read the Word of God for themselves. He was an enemy of the church at Rome and constantly repudiated their teachings and called them out by name. John Wycliffe died of natural causes and was, and was uh, buried. That's not John Wycliffe. Go back. That's somebody else. John, John Wycliffe died of natural causes and was buried. The Catholic Church was so incensed by what John Wycliffe had done and by the fact that he died of natural causes. This is no lie. It's a historical fact. 30 plus years later, they dug up his body for the purpose of burning it so that they could throw the ashes in the Rhine River just to prove John Wycliffe is no friend of the church. What did he do that was so terrible? He just went back to the Bible, he preached Jesus, and he wanted people to be able to read the scriptures. John Huss, who's that uh, photo is of right there, John Huss was burned at the stake. He was greatly influenced by the writings of John Wycliffe especially his rejection of any any biblical basis for the Pope having any sort of authority. Because John Huss had claimed to be a pastor, they had basically taken a knife and cut off the crown of of his scalp and placed upon him this paper hatch. And John Huss said, my Savior wore a crown of thorns. This is not so much for me to be able to bear in his place. He was chained to a pole and he was burned at the stake. And as he burned and they put that chain around him, he said, my Savior wore a much heavier chain than this. And as they asked John Huss to recant his teaching, he says, what I have said, I have said, and I seal it now with my own blood. John Huss was willing to die for his faith rather than repudiate the teachings of the Bible in Jesus Christ. William Tyndale made it his life's work to translate the Bible from the original Greek and Hebrew into the English language. He'd been having a conversation with a young man who said that we don't need the Bible, we just need to hear from the Pope. And he said, I defy the Pope and all of his teachings, and by the time that I'm done with my work, even the plowboy in the field will know more of God's word than the Pope himself. And he got to work translating the, the Bible into English from the Greek and Hebrew. And you and I, if we read the Bible in English, we're reading the work of William Tyndale. William Tyndale coined so many uh, neat phrases that we continue to use to this day, like the apple of my eye and things like that. Those were phrases that he coined himself as he wrote God's word for you and I. William Tyndale had finally completed his uh, New Testament translation uh, of the uh, English Bible in 1526, and they they were brought over on a cargo ship into London, and they began to flood out into the city of London, uh, and he had just finished the New Testament, was still beginning to work on the Old Testament. The Catholic Church deemed this as contraband and made it illegal to own a copy of the New Testament in English and required that every single one of those copies of the New Testament in London be rounded up and brought outside the church and burned in front of St. Paul's Cathedral. On the back side of St. Paul's Cathedral is this uh, monument here. It's called St. Paul's Cross. My wife and I had the opportunity to stand there this summer three years ago in that very place where they burned copies of the New Testament and deemed it illegal for you to read the Bible in your own language. And again, we look and say, who did these terrible, heinous things? The Catholic Church did. 
And so again, when we look back at church history and where the church came from, we need to understand that Christians and Catholics, you can't lump them into the same boat. We're not the same. We're totally different. And then in uh, October 6th of 1536 in the Netherlands, William Tyndale was taken into custody and was brought to a place of execution. He was tied to a stake and strangled by the hangman to the point of death and then burned in the fire for doing God's work. As he met the Lord, Tyndale cried with a loud voice, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. And again, this just began to, to light a fire that could not be extinguished. On October the 31st, uh, 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the All Saints uh, Church in Wittenberg, Germany, and spawned what we refer to as the Protestant Reformation. Not only did this guy have a super sweet haircut, um, he started something that began to cause people now that were a part of these churches. Now, mind you, keep in mind, the church that Jesus started has still been running all this time and has never stopped. But now there's people down here in a corrupt church that's been corrupt for hundreds of years, going back 1,500 years of corruption, saying, hey, wait a minute, I think what we're doing is wrong. And they began to leave these churches, and Martin Luther started the Lutheran church. And then we begin to see splits off of Catholicism. So here you see the split off of the church that Jesus started up top. You got Catholicism off of that breaks off the Greek Orthodox Church first, then Lutheranism. Then Henry VIII wants to divorce his wife, and he goes to the Pope and says, I wanted to divorce my wife. And the Pope says, you can't and still be a member of the church. And so Henry VIII says, okay, I'll start my own church and be the Pope of my own church. That's how it happened. And so in 1531, he started the Church of England and made the official church of England his very own church, and he got the divorce that he wanted. John Knox then started the Presbyterian church around the same time period as well. And now you begin to see people jumping ship from a corrupt church and starting new churches. Now, the problem with these new churches that came about is that they didn't come far enough out of the Catholic church. They still maintained a lot of the... Um, a lot of the uh, uh, pomp and circumstance, if you will. They still wore the long white robes. They still uh, did infant baptism. They still had a lot of candles that they would like and incense that they would burn and things like that as part of the tradition that they came out of in Catholicism. And again, we don't have time to get into it. The, the Protestant Reformation spawned what are referred to as the five solas. And if you want to do some research on this side on what that means, you can take a look at that. But basically, these were people who said, hey, we don't want to be a part of a corrupt church anymore. And they came out of the church, but they didn't come out sometimes far enough. Catholicism continued to be the church at Rome. Lutheran became the state church of Germany. Presby the Presbyterians became the church state of Scotland. And the state church of England was the church of England. So now, get this, this is going to blow your mind. You have these churches now that if you're in England, you must be a part of the Church of England. You don't have another choice. We are the state church. If, if you're in Scotland, you will be a Presbyterian whether you like it or not. That's the requirement that we have for the state that we're in the, because the, the state church is determined by the state. And so there was a group of, again, Bible-believing Christians that were part of the church that Jesus started who said, hey, we just want to be able to practice religion how we want. We don't want the government telling us who we can and can't worship, how we can and can't worship, and what church we should have to do. And so these crazy rebels that were part of the church that Jesus started said, hey, what if we went and found our own land and we founded it upon the premise of religious liberty? Does anybody see where this is going? 
And so you know what they did? They got on a boat and they went across the ocean and they found a land and they said, from here on out, we'll never tell people how they have to worship ever again. And again, if you want to read revisionist textbooks that are put out by a liberal agenda that wants to extinguish God from real deal American history, they'll say, oh, they came looking for wealth and land and be able to be rich. And so these people were flat, broke. All they wanted to do was worship Jesus the way the Bible said. So this this country was founded by people seeking religious liberty from the tyranny of these churches. Because please understand, the Church of England might have come out of the Catholic Church, but they were not friends to Bible-believing Christians. Lutherans became the state church of, of Germany, but they were no friends to the church that Jesus started. They were in sometimes even as rough in their persecution of the church that Jesus started. Then from this split we see in 1785, uh, the Methodist church split it off of the Church of England, which is also split into the Anglican church, uh, which also uh, split into the United States as the Episcopal church. And so we see a, a further splintering of the church below. But this top line up here, you notice, has just been unbroken because it's the church that Jesus started. Now, there were times where it wasn't huge, it wasn't massive, it, wasn't, it didn't have global appeal but those people never stopped following God's word. They might have been running for their life to do it. They might have been hiding copies of their Bible. They might have been moving from place to place to avoid persecution, but they never stopped believing the scriptures. And from in, uh, 1867, from the Methodist movement split off the holiness movement. In uh, 1906, the Pentecostal movement split off of the holiness movement. They began, uh, and again, study out church history, they began to do things like supernatural sign gifts and speaking in tongues and things like that. That started as, as recently as like 1906. So had you been looking for a church that speaks in tongues and speaks words of prophecy in the 1800s, they would have looked at you like you were crazy, like, do you even know the Bible, bro? Because that wasn't a thing before 1906. And so again, we got to go back and dial back and see how we wound up where we're at today. But there's always been just the people of the book up here. They just believed God's word to be so, and they just followed the scriptures. They weren't a part of any hierarchy or any denominational system. They just believed that Jesus' church was enough. And so the people on the bottom end of this, we refer to those as Protestant churches. These were the people that protested the Catholic Church and came out of it through the Protestant Reformation and then after. So we would say that, for example, Methodists would be Protestant. Episcopalians would be Protestant. Presbyterians would be Protestant. You might have even heard the term mainline Protestant. What does that mean? That means the initial splits, the big splits. Episcopal, uh, Presbyterian, Lutheran, uh, and um, there's another one that's escaping me. But those are the, your mainline Protestants that they would refer to. So then the question comes up. Are we a Protestant church? Well, then we've got to define what that actually means. Uh, two different do- definitions of Protestant. The first would be anybody who's not a Catholic church would be a Protestant. Most of you that serve in the military know that there's generally two services at the base chapel. There's the Catholic service and the Protestant service. And so... If I got to be put in one category, I'm whatever Catholic is not. How about that? 
But I wouldn't necessarily call myself a Protestant either because Protestants would be those who had come out of the Catholic Church as a part of the Protestant Reformation. Any adherence to any of those Christian bodies that separated from the church at Rome during the Reformation or any group descended from them. Hey, look, we identify with that top line of people that's just part of the church that Jesus started. We're not part of any split off or splinter of a false church. We, we didn't come, we weren't birthed from an illegitimate church. We were just part of the people who've been a people of the book throughout all of church history. And so I would, by definition, if I was talking to an unbeliever and they said, well, is your church Protestant church? I'd say, we're not Catholic if that's what you're asking. I said, well, what else would it mean? Well, I'm glad you asked. How long do you have? <laughs> and so, believe it or not, I've got, I honestly have like a five-minute version of this. It's really quick. Uh, and so... But again, we didn't split off of Catholicism. We're just part of the, of the church that Jesus started. How about that? And so when we look at this then, so Bible-believing churches have always protested unbiblical and contaminated churches, always. Again, biblical churches, the people of the book, have never wanted to be associated with false doctrine, heresy, putting people to death, anything like that, never. And so they've always been separate from that perspective. Also, it's important to note that while we stand with and identify with the church that Jesus started throughout the ages, we don't find it necessary to trace our lineage in unbroken continuity back to the apostles. There arose a movement in probably the late 1800s, early 1900s that was super unhealthy, where it says if you're calling yourself a real church, you need to be able to trace your lineage back in an unbroken succession all the way back to the apostles. And so no lie, these people started pouring over any piece of books or materials or uh, manuscripts that they could find to try to point out and connect the dots back there. We're not trying to do that. We're just saying that we stand with these people who never came out of the church. They've just always been a part of the church that Jesus started. They didn't ever come out of an unbiblical church per se. So we reject landmarkism and Baptist writers and those who claim to be the only authentic churches. If you hear these terms, let that throw up red flags all over the place. These are the people who say, well, who started your church? Well, our church was started by Lancaster Baptist Church. Who started Lancaster Baptist Church? Honestly, I don't know. Well, then you're not a real church. <laughs> okay. Thumbs up to you, buddy. Keep doing what you're doing. I don't care. Uh, and again, these people get a bad name because they're sometimes referred to as, as Baptist briders because this was very uh, um, popular in, amongst Baptist churches in the late 1800s and early 1900s to, to be able to trace back your family tree to the apostles. First of all, it's not biblical. Second of all, it's not necessary. Third, again, if we're just preaching Jesus and relying on him, that should be enough. And so all that stuff, again, you run into these terms, let that throw red flags. You go to a church, again, I would just be nervous of going to a church called Landmark Baptist Church. I don't know what you're trying to say with the name of your church, okay? And I might need to dig a little bit further to find out what that means. And so, again, we have to understand what we're talking about and what we're not saying. So, again, if you want to go down a rabbit hole, you can do that. Just make sure that you do it with discernment. Um, next. Bible-believing Christians were never part of the Roman Catholic Church, therefore we never came out of the Roman Catholic Church. So Baptists would not consider themselves Protestant because we never were birthed out of or broke off from or split from the Catholic Church. We're just part of the church that Jesus started back uh, when he called his apostles, when he empowered his church on the day of Pentecost. We're just a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church that always has been. 
And again, as you go through the ages, they've been called by many different names. One of the names they were called was Anabaptist because they were the rebaptizers. If you take someone who had been baptized in a Lutheran church as a baby and they came and got saved in a Baptist church, a Baptist would rebaptize them or baptize them scripturally the first time. And they got their name by, as a derogatory term, calling them the rebaptizers or the Anabaptists. Later, Anabaptists or the Anna portion would be dropped and they would just be referred to as Baptists, but even that was considered a condescending name towards them. And so again, you just got to look back at church history and find out that there's always been people who are people of the book. Uh, next. So, uh, the question is, what denomination are we? Well, when you talk about denominations, even the word denominator, the, if you under, remember uh, uh, probably middle school math, and I, I don't remember that much, but you know you have a numerator on the top and a denominator of a fraction. The, the denominator is the bottom part. So when you talk about denominations, it's basically what part of the fraction of Jesus' church do you ascribe to? And so even when people use the term like, what denomination is your church? I'll sometimes say, I'm not sure what you're asking with that, but we would be a Baptist church. Because when it comes to being Jesus' church, we don't consider ourselves as to being a, a part of a fraction of the church that Jesus started. We are the church that Jesus started. Like, we're not, we're not a denomination. We're not a, a fraction of Jesus' church. We're not a part of Jesus' church. We are Jesus' church, purchased with the, the blood of Jesus Christ himself. And so, again, we, didn't, we, we don't trace our lineage back to, to Rome or to Constantinople or anywhere like that. We trace our lineage back to Jesus Christ and the apostles in that day of Pentecost. That's where we came from. So, uh, then are we non-denominational? <laughs> wow, this gets deeper and deeper, doesn't it? Well, here's the fact of the matter. Every church under the sun adheres to some form of doctrine. And anybody who says, we don't really do doctrine here, we're more non-denominational, that's just not the whole truth. Again, because you go to a non-denominational church that says, we don't really make a big deal about doctrine, and you ask if you can sacrifice a, a, a goat on the altar this Sunday, they're going to tell you, yeah, we don't really do that here. So, again, even with non-denominational, there's still some confines of doctrine of what's appropriate and what's not. And sometimes non-denominational can just be a smorgasbord of, of different types of, of doctrinal stuff, depending on where, sometimes where the pastor came from or where the church started from and things like that. And what you might find is non-denominational might not actually be non-denominational. And so, again, I think there's a church over in, um, I, I want to say it's over in Kailua or something like that. It's called something really obscure called, like, The River or something like that. But, but I give them props. I really do. Because on their sign, on the front of their building, if you, if you need glasses to put them on, you can see it. Underneath it says they're, like, United Methodist Church of America or, you know, United Presbyterian Churches of America or something like that. Basically, you try to look non-denominational on the outside, but at the end of the day, you're really just something down here that you have to put on your glasses to read. I appreciate that because at least they're up front with it. Because there's other places on this island that are massive mega churches that you would say, oh, it's just a non-denominational church. Actually, it's not. It's a four-square Pentecostal church. No, it's not. Yes, it is. 100%. So, again, you want to do your research. Some of the largest churches on this island, uh, your, your New Hope Church, your Inspire Churches, all those are four-square Pentecostal churches. Now, again, they might come off as non-denominational. They might call themselves New Hope Christian Center. But at the end of the day, it's Pentecostal. And so again, what does that mean? Where does it come from? You need to understand your church history. And so again, when we use the term non-denominational, sometimes that can just mean a smorgasbord of different doctrine. And so again, at the end of the day, we got to put our stake in the ground as something that we believe in. So again, if I were going to give somebody a term, and it's probably the best term that I can come up with, it would probably be non-denominational Baptists. 
in the fact that we're not a part of a denominational structure. We're not Northern, Southern, Eastern, or Western Baptists. We're just good old Baptists. Uh, Bible-believing Christians. We don't associate with anybody other than Jesus Christ. Now, again, are there other churches that we're friendly with? For sure. There's other churches on the island that would be considered non-denominational Baptist churches. We might go to, to junior camp with them or teen camp or uh, have a you know, singles activity together with them. That's fine. But at the end of the day, they have no bearing over the governance of our church, and we have no bearing over theirs. We're just friends who, who love Jesus. Simple as that. I have good friends that are pastors of Baptist churches, and they have no uh, authority in our church or anything like that. We're, we're an autonomous, local, Bible-preaching church. And so, again, if I was going to use the term non-denominational, Baptist would probably be it. Um, historically, Baptists have held to the purity of Jesus' church and strict adherence to Scripture, even in the face of great persecution and or death. If I wanted to sum up everything, I would put it on this slide right here. This is it. When people say, what does it mean to be a Baptist? Again, how much time do you have? If you, if you want the short answer to this, Baptists are Biblicists. That's it. We're just the people of the book. Whatever the Bible says, we do it. Well, isn't that the case with every church? No, it's not. Not even remotely close. Whatever the Bible says, we do it, we live by it. We eat, sleep, drink, and breathe God's Word. It's our final authority for all matters of faith and practice. I don't care what your church was like in Michigan. I don't care what your grandma told you. I don't care what, how they did things in the last church that you were in. We stick with the Bible. That's it. That's what it means to be a Baptist. We're Biblicists. Again, do we adhere, adhere to any creeds? I don't know. Depends on what the creed says. I know with 100% certainty, I adhere to all of the Bible. Again, we don't put a lot of stock and faith in creeds and uh, confessions of, of things like that. And again, things like that might, might have needed to happen at certain periods of time and stuff like that. But we don't identify with, with creeds or confessions. We identify with the Word of God. It's important to understand this is super important because we run the risk of knowledge puffing up. It's important to understand that we are not the only true church and we're not the only church for the truth. Please get that. If you get nothing else from tonight other than that previous slide, get this. I'm not giving you ammunition to go to church, go to work tomorrow and say, oh, where did your church come from? I bet you came out of the spawn of Satan that is the Catholic church. Please don't do that. Please. That's not the purpose of this. The purpose is that just because somebody sings a song that your old church used to sing doesn't mean it's a biblical church. Just because if somebody puts on the homepage of their website that they believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God does not necessarily make them a biblical church. Look, people's statement of faith on their website is generally very orthodox, very straightforward. Again, you know, again, I can go to a church website and, and usually within about 90 seconds sniff out some really bad stuff. If you go to the homepage of even, and again, I've seen this in Baptist churches, go to the homepage and the homepage is lit up with Black Lives Matter and rainbow flags and defund the police on church websites, homepages, this is something I, that I want no part of whatsoever. Oh, it's a Baptist church. No, it's not. <laughs> no, it's not. 
oh, special word from our pastor, Reverend Susan. <laughs> you are not a Baptist church. You're just not. And again, I'm not trying to be mean. You're just not a biblicist. And any one that have called themselves a Baptist would recognize that you're not part of that. So again, I want to give you the tools that you need to have discernment. What is a real biblical church? But I want to encourage you with this thought tonight. First of all, that you're a part of the church that Jesus himself started. This wasn't a church that I, I started that I thought would be really cool because I didn't know any, anything else to do. <laughs> I, I was talking to a guy one time who was planning on planting a church, and, and I urged him not to. Hey, man, why do you want to plant a church? He was like, huh, I failed at everything else I've done in life. I thought I'd give this a shot. Please don't. Please? Like, seriously. Like, I'll give you $500 to not start a church. How about that? I'm not going to support you financially to start a church. I'll pay you $500 to quit, though. No lie. But you and I get to be a part of the church that Jesus himself started. We can look at the people who have given their life for the faith throughout the ages and say, that's us. We can look at guys like John Huss and I can say, praise God for a John Huss who would not bow to a false church and went to the death for it. Praise God for a William Tyndale who was willing to translate the Bible so that I could read the word of God and I could be saved so that I could read the word of God to my children and they could be saved. Praise God for William Tyndale. No lie, if either of my girls were, had been boys, their middle name was going to be Tyndale. Like that, that's like how big of a fan I am, really. We're part of the church that Jesus started, and all those people who died for the faith, those were our brothers and sisters in Christ. Next, you were part of the church that Jesus has purchased by his own blood. That makes this a big deal. This is more than just a place to come on Sunday and sing songs and, oh, I like the pastor because he's funny and he tells jokes uh, and things like that. Hey, look, that's not a church, Okay. Oh, I really feel alive in the worship in that church. Okay, what, is the, what are they preaching? What's coming from the pulpit? Are they serious about the gospel? Are people being saved? Is the kingdom being advanced? Not are they getting a crowd. Is the kingdom going forward? We're also part of a church that's been preserved by the blood of other people. We're here today and able to worship freely because some people gave their lives for what we had. Some people died so that you and I can hold a copy of God's word in our hand. Let's read it this week for heaven's sakes. Some people died so that you and I could worship together. Some of those pilgrims that came over on the Mayflower didn't make it so that you and I could one day worship in a place where somebody wasn't telling us what we could do and how we could do it. Let's make use of that freedom that we've been given. Some resources I think that you might find helpful uh, three books that I have on the back table over here, and again, we price them at cost or below cost. One is called Outsiders. It's a story of 15 people after biblical times that absolutely changed the world. Guys like John Huss, guys like Charles Spurgeon, uh, guys like William Tyndale, John Wycliffe. It's a brief bi biological snap of these guys. This book is one of the best books I've probably read in the last five years, like no lie. It was written by my pastor. There's so much deep stuff in there that Every chapter I got to the end of it, and I, I, I repented to God that I have not done enough for the kingdom. That's how much it stirred inside of me to do more. And so I'd encourage you to, to read that. Here's the deal. We paid $10 for the books. I'm, I, I marked them at $5 tonight. I'm willing to pay half if you'll just read the book because it'll change your life. It's that good of a book. Uh, the other one's a, a book called The Trail of Blood. Uh, basically kind of gives a, a more of an overview of church history like what we talked about tonight. Uh, and, and again, some people on the internet have discounted books like The Trail of Blood saying, oh, that's not true. You know, church history doesn't go like that, again, because the majority of, of church history has been written by our enemies. 
And so, again, we have to take that with a grain of salt. And so, some good material in that. Uh, and, again, uh, it, it leans a little bit more towards maybe landmarkism that some people have accused it of. I didn't read it that way when I read it. I just thought it was a really helpful book. Uh, and the other one is Fox's Book of Martyrs. It, it basically starts with the story of Stephen. All throughout church history, people who gave their lives uh, for the church and for the faith. Uh, again, I use these books as part of my devotional reading. Uh, again, that, out, that book, Outsiders, I try to read once a year because it, it just fires me up. And so... Those books are available for you on the back table. If you really want to dig deep and go down the rabbit hole, I've got a really big chart for you on 11 by 17 paper of the, uh, the church history and the splits that were there. And so if you want to take a look at that, uh, there's some of those on the table. There's no cost for those. We just print them out, and if we run out, we just print more. Uh, and so, but um, this is done a lot through the, the work of the, the Trail of Blood book. And so it just, again, shows throughout church history people along the bottom there. You see the unbroken line of churches, and the, then up through here you see false churches and fake churches and splits of churches and things like that. And so just a really helpful uh, tool that you have there. And so, again, those resources are available to you if they'd be helpful to you tonight. Uh, I just want to encourage you to love Jesus' church because it's a really big deal. And so, again, at the end of this series, at the end of the, the six weeks of this, again, I hope you walk away with this going, wow, we're a part of something really special. Not just because of the way that God's moving in our church, but just the fact that we're Jesus' church. Just the fact that we've been given such a gift of Christ and the the Word of God, and we've been given a mission of the Great Commission to reach the world with the gospel, man, we're part of something big, and I get to be a part of that. Not, oh, I have to go to church, I guess, or I'll feel really guilty. No, I get to go to church, and I get to be the church this week as well. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church Podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You'll find exciting classes for your keiki, a welcoming church family, and a message from the Bible that's sure to encourage your heart. Join us this Sunday. You belong here.